Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, flip over to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. As we continue our series together, Songs for Our Savior. Psalm 16. This morning we will take a look at the idea of Jesus being our life. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1. A mikhtem for David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely for you will not abandon my soul to shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for its truth. Father, we thank you for what it teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us when we try to find joy and peace and life elsewhere besides in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, instruct us, teach us to look upon Christ to see Him for who He is, to see ourselves for who we are, to feel and to understand and know our need of Him, and to pursue after Him wholeheartedly. Father, we thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of things that we want to see from our text this morning, beginning in the first three verses, we want to see our perspective, what our perspective should be like um, toward God, toward other believers, and toward those who are not in Christ. So first, here in the first verse, it says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good beside you. So first, our perspective on God. For those who are in Christ, those who have repented, those who have believed, those who have come under the sway of the gospel... The first thing that we see in our perspective is our perspective on God. We see first, you are my Lord. Now, we could literally spend weeks on this phrase. You are my Lord. There's a declaration being made here of submission to supreme authority. Now, that's really easy for us to say especially in a religious context like the one we find ourselves in right now. Oh, sure, yes, I've submitted myself to the Lord as a supreme authority over my life. Absolutely, I'm here, I'm in attendance, singing praises, I'm praying, I'm being attentive to the sermon, uh, I'm, I'm generally a good person throughout the week, I engage in a small group, I help to work with the kids or the youth or whatever, and we can start running through the accolades of spiritual things that we involve ourselves in and say, see, look, clearly, I submit myself to the supreme authority of God in Christ. And yet, each of us, at some point, I would say during this week, but if you're like me, sometime during the short morning that you've been up, have already engaged in some form of rebellion against the will of God. Whether it's active outward sinning, or whether it's the internal turmoil of the heart and the mind, 
For the call of the believer is what? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus carries it from just the external action to even the thought processes that we have about it. You've heard it said in the olds, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who hates his brother in his heart has committed murder against him already. Jesus takes it to a different level. And so when David makes this declaration, he gives his perspective, his perspective on God. He starts with a perspective of submission to sovereign, absolute authority. You are my Lord. I'm not my Lord. Some other earthly agent is not my Lord. My passions and my desires and my longings, they're not my Lord. My doubts and my fears and my anxiety and my confusion, that's not my Lord. My wishing things would be different than they are, that's not my Lord. You and you alone, sovereign God of the universe, are my Lord. And he's making a very profound statement about how we should perceive God in our lives. Everything else is less than you, O Lord. My family is not my Lord. My spouse is not my Lord. My children are not my Lord's. It feels that way sometimes, but they're not. You are my Lord. You. The one true only God of the universe. There is no one or nothing that has a more supreme place in my life than you. And there's a lot of reason I said we could take weeks doing this. There's a lot of verses that talk about this. There's a handful of themes in the scripture that are very abundant. That's one of them. The whole story of the Exodus. Do you remember why God said he did all of that? That they may know what? That I am the Lord. And here we are a few thousand years later, still talking about that story. Three of the major religions on earth have that story as part of their tradition. As a reminder that he is the Lord. So David starts out in a very deep place. I have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. And then he expresses how meaningful that is to him by adding this supplemental phrase I have no good beside you I have no good beside you none there's nothing that I have that is any good beside you Now, that's a tough statement. The first one was already really hard. But the second one is even more difficult to process. Because if if I'm honest, when I look at my life, I have a lot of good in my life. If you've met her, you know my wife is good. Way better than me. My kids, generally good. Where I live, good place. The work that I get to do here at Sylvania, good. The people of Sylvania, good. Health, generally, good. I can look around at myriads of things in my life and they are good. It is a good life. And David, who was the king of Israel... Yeah, there were some rough patches, but for the most part, good. 
once he had people trying to not kill him anymore, he was pretty good. Didn't want for anything. Had an entire army at his back and a promise of God that as long as people walked with the Lord, they'd never be overthrown. That's pretty good. And you know what David says? He says, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. So does that mean nothing in David's life was good? Of course not. That's not what this means. Remember, this is poetic language. Using extreme statements to drive home a point. Jesus did the same thing when he said, unless you hate your father and your mother, and he ran through a list, you don't really love me. So what did he mean? We have to hate everybody so we can show that we love Jesus? No. Our love of God should cause the way every other relationship appears to be one of hatred because of how much I actually love God. Here, David says, because of how good God is, it makes everything else in my life seem like it's actually not good compared to the goodness of God. And remember, this is a perspective thing from David. He's saying, I'm perceiving you, God, as so good that you're the only good thing that I have. How many of us, if we're honest, have felt that way about God this week? God, I think you're so good that everything else in my life seems bad compared to you. Have we gotten to that level of perspective that David had? So that's the perspective on God. God, you're my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. And that carries then, David, to have a perspective on other believers. Notice what he says in verse 3. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Here David now transfers all of this goodness he's feeling towards God and this relationship he has with the Lord. And he's using God-like eyes, Holy Spirit-type eyes. And he's looking out at other people who are in the fellowship, in the covenant with him. And when he sees them, he sees what he says are majestic ones. We should view other believers as majestic ones, mighty, magnificent, glorious. That's the language that's being used. Now, it's really easy for us to say, ah, yeah, God's my Lord and I have nothing good besides him. Super easy. It's really not that hard. It becomes a little more difficult in integrity and honesty to say, and while I'm doing that, Whenever I look around at any other believers that are in my life, I view them as glorious and magnificent and wonderful all the time. I heard the mild mild rumbling chuckle that ran through the sanctuary just then. Every time I ever see any believer, that all that goes through my mind is, these are the majestic ones of God. Glorious and good and great in every way. We, sadly, don't usually feel that way about each other. The scripture says that we should. The prayer that was prayed earlier, the prayer of unity from the Psalms, says that we should. That we should be patient and that we should be forgiving and that we should extend extra measures of grace and that We should give people the benefit of the doubt and that we should be quick to forgive and that we should be slow to get angry and myriads. By the way, you know, earlier we talked about, you know, themes of Scripture that uh, appear very readily. And one of them is that, you know, the Lord is the Lord. A second one that appears lots in the Scripture is this one. The love that we should have for other covenant community members and our willingness to embrace gospel living toward them. And to be Jesus to them and to view them as excellent and great because they are in Christ and Christ is excellent and great. And that's, I'm just going to be honest, that's really hard to do. 
Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe it's only hard for me to do. Maybe all of you are like, dude, I got this. I've got it whooped. It's really easy for me to just love everybody and nothing ever bothers me. It's not that easy for me to do. And I know it's not easy for people to do it toward me. I have a pretty good working knowledge of myself. I do a lot of self-reflection. I'm not a great guy. And so I get it. This is hard. To love people where they are. To look past faults. To look past hurts. To sacrifice self. To give up rights. To give up privileges. To give up position for the benefit of the other. To try to outdo each other in good works and love. It's hard. But notice David puts a cherry on top of this one too. He says, not only are they majestic ones, but he says, in whom is all my delight. David finds delight in other covenant community members. He doesn't just tolerate them. He delights in them. So much so, and I know we could argue about whether Saul was a covenant community member or not. And we can, that's okay, because there's another category coming after this one about those who still remain in their idolatry and sin. And so either which way King Saul will get covered. But remember how David acted towards Saul? David was declared the one true king. Saul was supposed to get out of the way. Saul then proceeded for pretty much the rest of David's life, to try and kill him. David had ample opportunities to kill Saul himself and rightfully take his place as king. Everyone in the kingdom said, David, that's what you ought to do. It's the righteous and just thing. And David said, I will never raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I won't do it. He delighted In Saul, the one trying to kill him. Even to the threat of his own life early in his life, David would go and play soothing music for him to try to get him to calm down. And while he did it, he tried to kill him. And then he'd go back and do it again. That is a picture of delighting in others regardless. We have a very robust and stout example in David of this. It's it's pretty over the top. So when David is singing the song, he's not just singing words like this is a life lived by David. Now, in case you want to throw Saul into a different category, David takes it a step further. Notice what he says when we get to verse 4. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offering of blood. I will not take their names upon my lips. Notice what he talks about for those who remain in their idolatry. I will not participate in their false worship. And I will not honor them by speaking well of their sin. Notice David does not speak about being vindictive toward them being mean-spirited toward them, being rude toward them. Notice that he isolates his angst toward them in two ways. One, participation in false worship. I won't do it. Two, I will not honor their names because of the idolatry that they live in. I won't give them a place of honor in the world that I live in. How many of us do that? We belittle the believers who are in our lives. We hurt them. We wound them. We... we. We slight them and then we turn toward people who are not part of the believing community and we elevate them and we exalt them and we honor them. We have it incredibly backwards sometimes. Our perspective should be, God, you are my God. I have no good beside you. Believer, you are a majestic one and I delight in you. Unbeliever, I will not participate in your false worship and I will not honor you by by making much of your rebellion against God. That should be our perspective in the world. And then David makes a turn in the psalm. And I want all of us to be encouraged by this this morning. I know the first 15 psalms have had some pretty heavy themes in them. They have. Some of you have been very free to share with me. Wow, this is is heavy. 
I think David kind of knew going along. He's all right, okay, we're going to all take a deep breath today on the 16th one. He gets heavy again after these, so just get ready. But he's like, let's take a little breather here. And let's talk about how good God is to us. And so he begins to do that. He talks about the kindness of God to his people. Beginning in verse 4, he's, um, uh, after verse, excuse me, beginning in verse 5. He says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Notice the first thing that that we need to see here. God's blessing of spiritual and, in most cases, physical provision. David uses three metaphorical pictures here. One of inheritance, one of a cup, and one of a lot. So this portion of his inheritance, the, the idea of an inheritance was a security, something that was, that was safe for you. So you had someone else who did all the work. In case you don't know, this is what the definition of an inheritance is. Go talk to all of your financial planning people. They'll let you know. Somebody else did all the work. And then when they die... Or become incapable of taking care of all the stuff they worked for. You get it. That's an inheritance. And so that's a security. That's someone else has done a great work and I'm benefiting from it. This is David's perspective on the Lord. Guess what? That's our perspective on the Lord. That's the gospel. Someone else has done a great work. And we get all the benefit from it. That's what Jesus has done. It is our security. It is our safety. I am safe in Christ because He has done a great work and I receive all the benefit from it. And not to put too fine a point on it, because He died and it was left to me. It's called grace. The Holy Spirit Himself is a down payment on that inheritance that I'll receive one day. Paul says this in his letters. So there's this picture of security, even in the old covenant reality. The inheritance concept was a security concept. Then David moves to this idea of the cup. So the Lord is a portion of my inheritance and my cup. So what is this this metaphor of the cup? The metaphor of the cup, and we're not going to like this because we like to think about, you know, being almost abusive in this life. If we're not like really deeply suffering all the time in this life, then we might be doing Christianity right. And that's just not always true. David says, the Lord is a portion of my inheritance and my cup. The metaphor for the cup is immediate delight. I'll show you. My throat is dry. I have a cup. Immediately, my throat is not dry. I'm very happy about that. Immediate delight. That's what a cup is. When you take drink, it's immediate. When you thirst and you drink and you thirst no more, it's immediate. Friends, in this life now, there is immediate delight to be found in God through Christ Jesus. It's not always about suffering. It's not always about sorrow. Friends, the reason why the Lord's table is called the Eucharist is called the Thanksgiving. It's a celebration of what Jesus has done and we delight in it right now. When I wake up each day and I know that I am in Christ and Christ is in me and it is all of His grace and it is none of me, that should fill my heart with joy right now. And then he talks about his lot. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. My heritage is beautiful to me. This concept of lot is long-term provision. Not the security of an inheritance that you'll receive much later on. 
but long-term provision, that thing that continues to provide for you over and over and over again. The idea of Lot is a plot of space of land that's being currently worked that continues to produce a harvest, and it continues to produce a harvest long-term over time. That's the idea. And these lines of this lot for me have fallen in pleasant places. In other words, I've gotten the good land. I didn't get a dry, sandy patch of dirt that you can't do anything with. I got the place with good soil and good water flow and good sunshine and good weather. God has been good to me and He's going to be good to me in the long term. He will cause fruit to be born in my life and He will bring a harvest from my existence because He is doing a great work in me. It will become part of my heritage. That's what's going on. So there's this picture of God's blessing of spiritual mostly, but also physical provision. And then he moves forward and he shows us this picture of God's blessing of mental, emotional instruction. Notice what he says in verse seven. He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. The Lord, the Lord has counseled me. I always have to be very careful when I say what I'm about to say because I know full well personally the benefit of counsel between two human beings. I do it a lot as a pastor for others. The scripture teaches that that is a good thing. I myself have gone to counselors, both friendly and professional, to seek good, wise advice and direction in my own life, to make sure I'm not missing things the way that they should be laid out. But friend, hear me this morning. The greatest counselor you will ever have is the Lord. He has given us profound insight into who we are, who He is, and who we should be in Him. And notice what David says. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Friends, he's even called the counselor in Isaiah. Like it's... This is who he is. The best advice you'll ever get because it's never wrong. There's plenty of times you might come to me and you get some bad advice. Because I'm not perfect and I'm flawed. And I don't see everything 20-20. And I just might steer you in the wrong direction. Same thing is true of anybody else you go see counsel with. There is one counselor that will never fail you. And I've heard people say to me, and those of you who are also involved in various forms of counseling in the room have probably heard it as well, and it's laughable. Well, you know, I tried counseling, but counseling doesn't work. <laughs> She's laughing. Thank you. I, I knew I knew we would get a kick out of that. No, friend, let me let you in on a little secret. Counseling doesn't work if you don't work the counsel. There's no just make me feel better counseling. Counseling requires action after the fact. And so even when the Lord counsels you, He's counseling you to a different practical direction of life. You're walking a wrong pathway. You need to live life differently. You need to think about life differently. You need to engage life differently. There's work to be done in the Spirit so that you can sanctify, be sanctified. You can cultivate the gift that has been given to you and you can progress in your holiness. All of this is here in this book. And David says, the Lord has counseled me. Friends, that's beautiful that God is concerned with our mental and emotional instruction. Notice what else he says. He says, I bless the Lord who's counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. 
That word for mind there is the Hebrew word for the inner man. That's self-reflection. Paul calls it self-examination. My inner man has been instructed so that I can be transformed from the inside out. Friends, if I want something different than what's going on, my life is full of pain, my life is full of sorrow, my life is full of anxiety, my life is full of stress, my life is... So I think I'll just wake up tomorrow and do all the exact same stuff that I did the day before and hope that it will be different. That's a functional definition of insanity, by the way. Doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. So what we do is we come to the Lord and He is our counselor and He gives us counsel and He tells us this is the path of life. This is the way to walk. This is the direction to go. This is how you should be living your life so that you can become conformed to the image of Christ. And then we have self-reflection and self-examination and we do the hard work of, of walking with God and applying the knowledge we have to where it becomes wisdom. And in that process, the inner man is instructed and our lives are transformed. And friends, it's not immediate and it's not quick. It takes a long time. And sometimes you walk and sometimes you run and sometimes you crawl and sometimes other saints drag you and sometimes God himself carries you. But it's a beautiful thing. Because at the end of it, the prayer is that we can say like Paul did, if you want to be like Jesus, just imitate me. What a great place to try to get to. So not only is God kind to us and the fact that he blesses us with spiritual provision and not only does God bless us with mental and emotional instruction, but then as David continues to walk through the psalm, there's the blessing of God's presence and security. Notice what it says. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. I wish I could say that I set the Lord continually before me, but I don't. There's piles of other things that I put out in front of myself instead of the Lord on a fairly regular basis. And when I do that, guess what happens to me? I'm shaken. Stress and anxiety and depression and frustration and anger and all kinds of other things come flooding into my life. But David says, you know what? I set the Lord continually before me. He is at my right hand. He is with me and he supports me and he strengthens me. And he upholds me. He's a foundation upon which I stand. The banner under which I walk. The strong tower in which I climb into. He is my rock and my salvation and my fortress and all the other hosts of metaphors that talk about it. Jesus himself said it even more profoundly. We're in the Father's hand. And nothing can pluck us out. And friends... I think if most of us were very honest in the moment, there's a lot of times throughout our week where we just don't feel the presence of the Lord or the security that that presence brings. And guess what? It's not the Lord's fault. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He abides with us always and continually. He is at our right hand. The problem lies usually in us not setting the Lord continually before us. Right there in the face. Friends, what should our response to all of this goodness from God be? This kindness of God to His people? This 
spiritual provision and this blessing of mental and emotional instruction and this blessing of presence and security because friends all of these things are ours in christ jesus the 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 word teaches us that all of the promises of god are yes in christ and he has promised us all of these things and so much more what should our response to these truths be the answer is worship look at verse 9 Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely. For you won't abandon me, my soul to shale. You won't allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You make known to me the path of life. So here in verse 9, we specifically see that our response should be worship. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Friend, is your heart glad today? I don't need a response. It's a rhetorical question. But is is your heart glad today? If you are a believer, if you've repented and had faith, if you're contemplating the work of Christ on your behalf, if the Lord is set continually before you, friend, your heart should be glad. Even in the midst of the worst circumstances that you could possibly face, they are nothing compared to this beautiful reality of your living in Christ. Friends, the only response that we have to these truths about God is that our heart should be glad. Our glory, I love this, our glory rejoices. What does that even mean? Well, what is the glory of man? The glory of man is that he's been made in the image of God. His whole being reflects the person of divinity, true divinity. Everything about me that is glorious because I've been made in God's image should be rejoicing because of God's love and kindness toward me. So what is that? We have already touched on it. I love the Lord my God with what? My heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. Every part of who I am rejoices when I work with my hands. Rejoice. When I think with my mind, rejoice. When I feel with my heart, rejoice. When I act in a spiritual way toward my brother with my soul, rejoice. Everything, as Paul says, in our lives should be a spiritual act of worship. This environment, though usually used this way, really shouldn't predominantly be a place to come and get the tank filled to try to get me through the week. This place that we come to together should be a response from us having walked with God all week and spent a full week of living our lives as worship, rejoicing in the fullness of our glory so that we can all come together celebrating the fact that we just spent an entire week living out conformity with Christ in the world. Say, but Phil, I don't usually feel that way. You know what? A lot of times I don't either. But I should. I should. That's how it ought to be. I ought to have the Lord continually before me and that should spark day by day, moment by moment, gladness in my heart and glory rejoicing. So that my flesh will dwell securely. And then notice the other promise here. Not only does this lead to worship, but there's a promise that comes with this. God will not abandon me. Friend, whatever you're going through right now, God, if you're in Christ, God has not and will not abandon you. He won't. He said he won't. I love... Love, love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or as all the kids say it when they're learning it in Sunday school, to bed we go. So cute to see the kids say it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king's edict comes down. 
No other gods to be had, no other prayers to be offered, no other worship to be had. They bring the edict to these men. One of the greatest statements anywhere in the Bible. We know that our God is able to save us from the fire. But even if he does not, we will not bow down and worship your statue. So the king, doing what kings do, gets in a rage about it. says, make that fire even hotter. So hot that the guy that gets ready to throw them in the fire himself gets consumed by the heat. These three guys go in the flames. And the king looks and he sees and he says, Was it not three men that I threw into the flames? Yet I see a fourth one who is like the Son of God. He will not abandon you. He won't. Now, that doesn't always mean you get to walk out of the fire like they did. Because he didn't abandon James when he got burned to death in a boiling cauldron. He didn't abandon Peter when he was hung upside down on a cross. And we can walk through the rest of the list. They also were not abandoned. Their circumstances just turned out a little differently. But He doesn't abandon you. He is there with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you, the Scripture says in both covenants. When it's said in both covenants, serious. You will not abandon my soul, Sheol. You won't allow the Holy One to experience decay. By the way, that passage is used of Jesus in the New Testament, which means it's Christological, which means therefore it's true for us because He is in us and we are in Him. He is the head and we are the body. He is the husband and we are the bride. He's the shepherd and we are the sheep. And so our fates are sealed together and His fate is one of not being abandoned by God. His fate is one of everlasting resurrection. His fate is new glorious body. His fate is reigning for everlasting. And this is what we participate in. Why will God not abandon me? Because He will not abandon Jesus. And I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Which leads us to verse 11. Jesus is our life. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And I know some of you are saying, Philip, how in the world do you see Jesus being our life in this text? We're going to do a little Bible drill. I want to I walk through this, this verse, and, then, and I want to hit a few others. I'm going to flip over there real quick. If you want to go ahead and pre-turn, in a second we're going to go to John 15, John 16, and John 17. You can go ahead and pre-turn there if you'd like. We're actually going to back up and start in 14. 14, 15, and 16, and 17 of John here in just a second. Take a deep breath. We're not going to go through all four chapters verse by verse. Although Kyle did inform me that if he gives me the symbol signal, that that means they need more time in the back to get ready for the thing. You know, and so the sermon may go like an extra 30 minutes if they need more time in the back. So that's just be ready. You make known to me the path of life. It says here in verse 11. That word for path here in the Hebrew is also translated way or the road toward something. It's the way or the road of what? It is the way or the road of life. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is a clear adjustment Of what's being said here at the end of Psalm 16. When Jesus references himself as the only true way to life. It's carrying over the mental principle that we find here at the end of Psalm 16. 
Jesus is declaring to be the knowledge to the path of life that David is talking about here. And then it continues. And let's get there. John 15. Second phrase is, in your presence is fullness of joy. In John 15, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, and remember, this is union with Christ stuff. This is why we dwell securely. This is why we don't undergo decay. This is why we have received all these kind blessings from God. This is how we've been made known the path of life is because we are in life itself, Jesus Christ. Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Remember that thing we were talking about earlier? That lot that produces and creates a heritage. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it can bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and it dries up. They gather them up, they cast them in the fire and they're burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you... Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. And you're going, what does that have to do with the fullness of joy? Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that you... So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Fullness of joy. It's a lot of Psalm 16 happening here in John 15. He made known to me the path of life. In your presence, friends, you don't get any more in the presence than actually abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in you as a vine and a branch. And there and only there do you find your joy being made full. But Jesus continues. Very next chapter, John 16, beginning of verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him and he said, Are you deliberating together about this? You said in a little while you will not see me. And again in a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. How are we going to get this joy? Whenever a woman is in labor and she's in pain because the hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, talking to his disciples, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice and no one will take that joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be made full. Future resurrection. Life in Christ. Knowing him and being known by him. But it doesn't stop. John chapter 17, high priestly prayer. We could read all of it to this point, but midway through, Jesus says this. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. This is verse 12. And I guarded them and not one of them perished except for the son of perdition so that the scripture will be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves in your Presence, Lord Jesus Christ, is the fullness of joy. Philip, my life is joyless. Then why are you not spending more time in the presence of Christ Jesus? It is the only place where the fullness of joy can be found. And in your right hand, it closes, there are pleasures forever. Flip back to Matthew chapter 5. This is not exactly the same root word when you cross languages from Hebrew to Greek, but it carries with it a similar concept. 
In your right hand there are pleasures forever. The word translated in Psalm 16 for pleasures means delight or happiness. Very similarly, the word for blessed in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and what we call the Beatitudes also means delighted or blessed. And so Jesus walks through what the pleasures forever looks like. Blessed, delighted, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy, delighted are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, happy, delighted, full of pleasure are those that are gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed, delighted, happy, full of pleasure are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed, happy, delighted, full of pleasure are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed, delighted, happy, full of pleasure are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed, delighted, happy, full of pleasure are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed, delighted, happy, full of pleasure are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, delighted, happy, full of pleasure are you when people insult you and persecute you and and, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then here's the rejoicing. Rejoice and be glad For your reward in heaven is great. Why? For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, a lot of us are walking around talking about unhappy our lives are. It's because we have a grotesquely deformed definition of what it means to be happy. Being happy is not the same thing as currently having no problems based on my personal perspective. Not the same thing. Jesus gives us a remarkably different definition of pleasure and delight and happiness. And when I am poor in spirit, when I'm broken over my sin, when I mourn over my sin and the sin of this world, when I am gentle in a world that's full of violence, when I hunger and thirst after righteousness rather than the things of this world, when I'm merciful in place of being vindictive, when I'm pure in heart rather than twisting myself towards the wickedness of this world, when I long to make peace in a world where there is no peace to be found, when I am receiving persecution and reviling and insult and I don't pay that evil back in kind, but rather I receive it joyfully because others who have gone before me have received it in the same way and they did the same to my Master and my Savior the Lord Jesus Christ and I find my delight in the reception of the kingdom and the comfort that comes from God and the inheritance of this earth and the satisfaction that comes from that hungering and thirsting and the mercy that I receive from God and the actual seeing the face of God and being called one of God's children and receiving the kingdom of heaven then and only then do I understand what pleasures forever actually are. And I have to have an entire worldview transformation that can only come from abiding in Christ. You make known the path of life who is Jesus Christ Himself. And in your presence is the fullness of joy. And in your right hand, which by the way is an Old Testament metaphor for Jesus Himself, are pleasures forever. Friend, this morning, be encouraged. If you are in Christ, these are some, not even all, some of God's promises to you. And it is beautiful. Let's pray together.